Welcome to First Presbyterian Church of Evanston. This Sunday's sermon was given by Senior Pastor, Rev. Dr. Ray Hilton. If you'd like more information about First Presbyterian Church of Evanston, please visit firstpresevanston.org. Our scripture reading today is from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, in the Old Testament section of our Red Bibles, beginning on page 629. Please join me in a prayer for illumination. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive all glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Father, show us how to glorify you. Show us how to live our lives in your will. Through your word and Pastor Ray's message, show us the way. Amen. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 1. I said to myself, come now. I will make a test of pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But again, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I search with my mind how to cheer my body with wine, my mind still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly. Until I might see what was good for mortals to do under heaven during the few days of their life, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herd and flocks and more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and treasure of kings and of the provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and delights of the flesh and many concubines. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and all the toil I had spent in doing it, and again, all was vanity and a chasing after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This is the word of the Lord. Well, the Lord be with you. What an honor it is to be together in God's house to worship and to hear these scriptures read. If this is your first Sunday here with us, I want you to know what we're doing. We are in a very short series in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we've called the series Reason for Being, Reason for Being. And I don't know if you know this, but I'm just going to say something that may be true, it could be something you're hearing for the first time, but God 
God has a plan. God has a destiny for your life. There's a reason why you are here, not just here in this building, but there is a reason why you're here on planet Earth. Your life before God is precious. Here's one scripture that I love. The psalmist in response says, I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. And I hope you know that full well, that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. The other thing I want us to know, though, is that because of sin, our lives are not what they should be. We don't always feel those kinds of thoughts. And that's why it's important that we know where our life is rooted, must be rooted in Christ. Otherwise, you're going to feel like a fish out of water. Some people, when they hear these words read from Ecclesiastes, tend to dismiss them as the bitter reflections of some aging guy who is uh, on the way out. But I came across a book several years ago, and I finally read it last year by a French lawyer and sociologist. His name is Jacques, Jacques Ellul, and the book is called, and I actually stole his title for the book as this title for the series, Reason for Being. He says this, he said, I read and I meditated and I prayed over Ecclesiastes for 50 years. Can you imagine doing that? I have probably explored it more than any other book in the Bible. It has given me more. It has spoken to me more than any other book. And I'm beginning to feel that way the longer I read the book of Ecclesiastes. I appreciate Martha's comments, too, about the women in Nourish reading the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm so grateful to hear that. Last week, if you were here last week, we were in chapter 1, and the best way I can describe what was going on in chapter 1 is that the writer, some people say it's Solomon, other people just say it's this teacher or preacher who's gathering people or gathering ideas and, and sharing them, that this person seemed very distant from what was going on. He was kind of sitting back and watching nature and watching experiences and watching people. And he came up with this statement that when I look at everything that's going on around me, he says it's meaningless and it's empty. And here in chapter 2, he goes in a slightly different direction. He gets out of the role of the observer and he says, I need to get in the game. I'm going to test. I'm going to experience. I'm going to experiment. And that's what he's really doing here. And in his search for meaning, and that's what he's really looking for. That's why if you are a seeker, if you are looking, you're looking for more. You're looking for something to hook into, something to believe in. Maybe you consider yourself an agnostic or an atheist or a doubter. I say, welcome, 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 welcome. This is the greatest book to be reading because this book is written by somebody who is looking for the, the real stuff in life. He said, I'm ready to take some risks. You know, it's funny, one of the commentators I read said that it's possible this man was going through a midlife crisis. And you know, a midlife, midlife crisis happens to people in their middle 30s or their middle 50s 
And what happens to us when we're in a midlife crisis is that we lose our sense of confidence. We're not sure anymore about everything. We lose a sense of our identity and our purpose, and we begin to question life, and we begin to question work, and we begin to question our commitments, whether it's marriage or other commitments, our friendships and our values and our direction. And some people, they're trying to get their mojo. They're trying to recover their mojo. And they will say, well, I'm just going to go get a new wardrobe. I'm going to get a new car. I'm going to get a motorcycle. I'm going to get a new marriage. Some people are so vulnerable, they fall into an affair or they abuse alcohol. I'm saying all that to say that I don't want you to take what we're going to hear in a minute as something lightly. It's quite possible that this person is going through a midlife crisis. I'm in the middle of almost finishing a book that was actually given to me by Pastor Henry. If you go into Pastor Henry's office, he has more books than anything else in his office. So he gave me a book. The book is called The Second Mountain, The Quest for a Moral Life by David Brooks. I'm almost done reading it. And what David Brooks call this, calls the second mountain. What, what, I'm sorry, what he's doing, he's comparing life to two mountains. And on the first mountain, he says, we are driven to succeed, and that's why, you know, that's pretty much what a lot of us are doing. We go to school, or we went to school, and we're seeking a career, or we have a career. We're, we're seeking, if possible, to have a family. He says, on the first mountain, we all want to perform certain life tasks, establish an identity, separate from our parents, cultivate our talents, build a secure ego, and try to make a mark in the world. People who are climbing that mountain spend a lot of time thinking about reputation management. They're always keeping score. How do I measure up? Where do I rank? The goals on the first mountain are typically the goals that our culture endorses, he says. Goals like be a success, to be well thought of, to get invited into the right social circles, and to experience personal happiness. It's all the normal stuff, he says. To have a nice home, to have a nice family, to have nice clothes, to go on nice vacations, to eat good food, to have good friends, and you could just go on and on and on describing what the whole world, in many cases, is, is seeking after. Then he says, something happens. Some people get to the top of that first mountain and they taste success and they find it unsatisfying. And they said, well, is this all there is? And they wonder and they sense that there must be a more profound journey they can take. He says, other people get knocked off the mountain by some failure. Something happens to their career, to family, to their reputation. And suddenly, he says, life doesn't look like a steady ascent up the mountain of success. It has a different and more disappointing feel to it. And so if David Brooks is right, and I think he's right, then this person that we're reading about is still on his first mountain. And that is why he says in chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, I said to myself, come now. I will make a test of pleasure. Enjoy yourself. 
What exactly did he do in his experiment to find pleasure? Well, again, I quote David Brooks in his book. He says, the way to tell whether you are on your first mountain or your second mountain is to ask, ask this question, where is my ultimate appeal? Is it to self or is it to something outside of self? And so in my listening to the text all week, I started asking the teacher the David Brooks question. And I said, sir, where is your ultimate appeal? What is the organizing principle for your life? Is it inside yourself or is it outside yourself? Is it a thing or is it a person? And then, believe it or not, the teacher gave us the answer to that mega question. And it's in verses 3 through 11. So I'm going to ask you, and I know you, you read along with David, and I'm going to ask you just to open your Bibles up again if you would, because I really want you to see the teacher's answer to that big question in verses 3 through 11. Notice what he said, and notice how many times he uses the personal pronoun throughout his answer to that big question. He said in verse 3, I searched with my mind how to cheer my body with, my, with wine. I made great, I made myself great works. I built houses and planted vineyards. And notice for who he did it. He said for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. Verse 6. I made myself pools of water from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flock, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. Verse 8, he's answering the big question, guys. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and princes. I got singers, both men and women, and delights of the flesh and many concubines. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Verse 10, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. So again, David Brooks says, you can know what is important to a person by where they find their ultimate appeal. You can know what's important to a person by where they invest their time and their energy. It's either in the self, in something, or in someone outside the self. And I would suggest to you that when you look at the many, many references to the self in the reading here, where the writer says, I made and I bought and I built and I gathered and I searched and whatever my eyes desired and I went out and I took it and I indulged in it, that this man's quest for happiness is rooted 100% in himself and himself alone. I hate to bring this up, but I'm going to bring it up because this is not a positive thing to bring up, but I was reading an interview that Jeffrey Epstein gave back in 2003. Some of you may have heard it. He gave this interview on what is now dubbed 
his private pleasure island, Little St. James. And he told the journalist, David Banks, and for a moment I thought I was reading the words of Ecclesiastes. Listen to what Jeffrey Epstein said to this journalist. I realize what I am, and I'm very comfortable in my own skin. I feel free to follow my own personality. On my own island, I'm free to do what I want, explore what I want, experience what I want. It's not just the teacher of Ecclesiastes who is on this quest. It's not just predators like Epstein or Weinstein who think this way. I hate to say it, but all of us think this way. All of us have so imbibed the American version of what freedom is. I can do whatever I want to do as long as no one is hurt. I can do it. And we believe that. We believe that somehow by ourselves, with ourselves, and for ourselves, that we can bring ourselves ultimate happiness, ultimate success. And this sort of behavior is what many, many people are condemning now. And they're calling it hyper-individuality. We become really small packages when we get all wrapped up in ourselves. And the question is, I asked the teacher, I said, so did it work? And the teacher said, did you read verse 11? And I looked at verse 11 and what the teacher was admitting that many of us don't want to admit is that it's, it, it's a failure. He said in verse 11, I considered all that my hands have done and the toil I had spent in doing it. And again, Notice the cascades of words. All was vanity, a chasing after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained, nothing to be gained, no profit. And again, that wonderful phrase, under the sun. And so after trying to create heaven on earth, the teacher concludes that there is nothing. There is no such thing where I have the ability to create heaven on earth. There's nothing to be gained under the sun. And the question is, why? And it goes to the heart of the message this morning. More stuff. An intense focus on our happiness will never lead us to happiness. Materialism, consumerism will always fail us, will always fail to provide human life with meaning. And so we come back to the big question then, what is my ultimate appeal? To use the language of Ecclesiastes, what will bring pleasure? What will bring joy? And I want to answer this question by telling you a story. Social psychologist Jonathan Haidt interviewed a woman who volunteers at the Salvation Army, and she often does it with a group of people from her church. And it was on one of those cold, wintry morning when they finished working, and a member of their team decided to give all the volunteers a ride home. It had been snowing solidly that morning, and as they were driving through this neighborhood, they saw this older lady standing in the middle of her driveway. The snow is coming down. It's piling up. And she's standing there in her driveway with the shovel in her hand. And at the next intersection, one of the occupants of the car said, you know what, let me off here. And everyone thought, well, maybe the guy lives at 
this house or the house across the street. But instead, when the man got out of the car, he turned and he ran back to the woman and he took her shovel, didn't know her from Adam, and began shoveling her driveway. And one of the people in the car who witnessed what this man did later said, I just felt like jumping for joy. I felt like I wanted to get out of the car and just give this man a big hug. I tell you that story to try to answer the question, what brings joy? What is it that fills us up to overflowing? When people want joy, where do they go? When people want satisfaction, where do they go? And clearly the answer isn't in hyper-individuality. The answer isn't in climbing your mountain. I believe the answer is found in generosity. When you make generosity the way you live, you will find great joy. And the people who find real joy, it's the people who have given themselves away. Can I say that again? They have given themselves away. They're not owned by anything. They're not owned by anyone. They're not controlled by anything. They've given themselves away to what is deep and to what is loving and to what calls for commitment. Giving is part of who they are. And it's what fills their soul. And I think of the words of Jesus when he said, if you want to be great, learn to be the servant of all. David Brooks calls this kind of living life on the second mountain. It's no longer about personal success. It's no longer about massaging your reputation and managing your reputation. It's no longer about what people think and say about you. Second mountain people are so deeply invested in loving God and loving others, and it's never about them. And I'm going to warn you, if you think this is easy, I want you to think again. Because you and I are wired for selfishness. The minute we came kicking and screaming out of the, room, the womb, it was a cry of me, 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 me. And what we need to learn, my friends, and we must never stop learning the gospel. Because in the gospel, we discover Jesus. Jesus lived a second mountain life. He said I, he came to give his life for the world. He said, he said the son of man, listen to this. This, this. These are the words of a second mountain person. He said the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. Only God through Jesus Christ can satisfy the human soul. Some of the happiest people that I know in first prayers are second mountain people. Some of the happiest people I know in my network of friends are second mountain people. And even if they have money, the money doesn't define them. They can give it away in a heartbeat. It's never about them. It is about giving glory to God and living a life of service for others. That is our purpose, the measure, the measure of a life. What is the measure of a life? What do you want to be remembered for? Go back and read the words of this man who had it all. He had it all, friends. He had the stuff that you and I would dream of. And when he got it, 
and he got to the top of that first mountain, he said, no, there's got to be more. This is empty. This is no good. The measure of a life is not in how much you accumulate. It's in how much you give. It's in how much you give. Some of the happiest people in the world are givers. They give their time. They give their money. They give their resources. I was reading an article this week where this person said that in the Bible, Jesus was asked over 330 questions. And this person said, and I, I, I haven't taken the time to check it, that Jesus only answered eight of them. And Jesus asked over 108 questions. So he, he was asked 330 questions. He only answered eight. And then he turned around and asked 108 questions. And I want to give you one question that Jesus asked. And I want to use this question as our closing thought because I think this gets to the heart of what is ultimate and what is important. Jesus asked this question, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self. Let's do a little experiment here. Let's take out the phrase whole world. What good is it for someone to gain, or let's even say for me to gain, and fill in the blank? And then ask yourself the question, if I gain such and such, what will it cost me? Am I going to lose myself? Am I going to lose my, my way? Am I, I going to lose my God? And if you come up being a loser because of what you gained, then it's not worth it. This is the question to ask. This is the question to answer. If you're trying to find a true joy, true meaning, and purpose for your life, I pray this morning that you will be able to answer that question. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and God's children say,